I'm so thankful that uh, Huey was able to read the word of the Lord. I don't know if I could follow the act of the children's Christmas uh, music. And I see that Art has been holding back on me. I see there's like a big screen teleprompter here that I could have had access to for the last four to six weeks. But anyways... Uh, what a joy it is for us to be here with you today. It, it is uh, our last day as we wind down here with Grace Church Advance. And um, on behalf of Julie and I, I just want to thank you, members of Cornerstone, for the grace and the love that you have extended to us. Um, it has been a thrill, it has been a joy, and it has been a blessing. And uh, we are indebted to you for giving us the opportunity to serve Christ our King and to serve you, His children. So we want to thank you for that. Um, I bring you greetings uh, from the elders of Grace Community Church. Um, I'm indebted to you, to Matt Kopp, and also the leaders of the church for allowing me to be away from the pulpit last week to go to the Grace Advance Summit. We were able to have time with the elders there, and we were also able to have time with Dr. MacArthur, and I was asked to present uh, our ministry here at this church to Dr. MacArthur in a small group, and uh, I was able to ask him for some counsel uh, on behalf of you, of the way forward, and present some of the challenges that have been brought before you in times of transition and new leadership. And uh, he gave me this exhortation, which I want to pass on to you. He said, you know, <clears throat> he said, it took me seven years to really establish the church that I began in. And so he said, regardless of the challenges, regardless of the problems, regardless of the transitions, rather than focusing on the challenges, the crises, and the problems. He said, Mark, exalt Christ highly, point everyone's eyes to Christ, and proclaim his word, and then, he said, patiently wait for the sufficiency and the authority of Christ's word, and patiently trust in the sufficiency and authority of Christ's word, and in time, that will lead a people through and overcome the challenges which are there. And so that was an encouragement to me, and I wanted to share that with you, um, and may that be uh, the legacy that is left from Grace Advance here. Well, this morning we come to one of my favorite times of year, uh, and one of my favorite subjects, and one of my favorite opportunities to exalt Christ highly, which is the Christmas story which Huey just read for you from Luke 2. And the title of our sermon this morning is The Joy of Christmas, and our text is taken from Luke 2. And also leaning a little bit on that passage in Jeremiah about the shepherds and the shepherd that Christ and that God will bring. And as we come to the word of God, uh, let's go to his throne in prayer and ask for his blessing for our time together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Uh, you are the great shepherd who has come down. And though many shepherds have gone before us, Lord, and some have been good and some have discouraged us and Though there will be many men and many relationships and many situations that at this time of the year can be discouraging to us, Lord, we thank you and praise you that you sent your only son, someone who we could rely on, someone who loved us, someone who was gracious, someone who sacrificed everything and gave up his throne and glory that he might become a frail baby, a child, Lord, vulnerable, Lord, subject to many, many difficult circumstances and ultimately the rejection of men. And he did so out of love for us, love for sinners, love for people who could not save themselves. He came to be our Savior, our Christ, our Lord. And we are so indebted to you for that. We of all people have every reason to jump with joy and be thrilled and excited that we have such a God who loves us in such a way. 
and brings his glory to be with us through the presence of a child, Lord. We thank you for these things. And we just ask as we come to your text this day that you would be exalted, that we would become less, and that your word would go forth and it would be the source of our joy and our encouragement this Christmas season. In your name we pray, amen. Well, as we come to the Christmas season, this is the season of joy, the holiday of happiness. And if we hear the Christmas carols, which I get a chance to hear on the radio all the time, this is allegedly the happiest time of the year, the most wonderful time of the year, especially if you're a recording artist and you have a Christmas album out. And it just never ceases to amaze me as I I hear the Christmas carols to see the selection from every faith, every ethnicity, and every walk of life who are able to come and put a Christmas album out. I know Rod Stewart has a Christmas album out in 2012 this year, and I, for one, cannot wait to hear his rendition of Silent Night, Holy Night. Um, But as we think of this time of year, of a season of joy, a season of delight, a season of thrill, a time of intense happiness, um, and we think of all the things that are associated with that, friends, family, eggnog, great meals, maybe, maybe turkey, maybe ham, whatever we have there, but this time of lights, which brings us great joy, um, it raises the question to us, what is joy and what is the source of our joy? I, for one, learned at a very young age that the joy of Christmas is actually a very fragile and very fleeting joy, and it doesn't take much for it to get interrupted. I recall probably at the age of 10 or 11, where my brother shattered my fantasy of Christmas as he informed me that Santa Claus was not a rather large, morbidly obese man with a lot of white hair and rosy red cheeks and a red nose and looked like a guy who had just had a few drinks the night before, but instead that that Santa Claus was actually a a short Asian man named Mr. Chin and his elf uh, and helper was Mrs. Chin. And after the kids went to bed at night, they would take a closet full of gifts and basically put them under the Christmas tree, and that would be our delight and the source of our joy. And as my brother told me that that was the case, I was devastated until the gifts came and I realized we had a good thing going, and no matter who it was who was bringing the gifts, Christmas was worth celebrating. But it brought home the fact that in our time and in our era, Christmas and the joy of Christmas and really the joy of the modern age is really something very fragile, something very fleeting. It doesn't take very much. And we think of the deaths that happened recently at that school in Newport, and we need to remember those people and pray for them. But we realize that it doesn't take very much, does it, for sorrow and sadness to come in when we live in a fallen and sinful world, and for the joy and the things that cause delight and cause our eyes to light up and cause us to jump for joy, that those things are banished very, very quickly. And the question comes, what is really the true joy of Christmas? What is it that we're really celebrating this day? What is it that causes these children to get up on stage and sing with joy and sing with delight? And as we look at the Gospel of Luke and we look at Luke's account in Luke 2, what we discover is we discover a very different joy than much of the joy that we experience or that we celebrate, not just at Christmas, but year-round in America. When we look at the Gospel of Luke, Luke in the very beginning in his first chapter tells us why he wrote this Gospel. In Luke 1, he informs us that he has painstakingly investigated the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, and that he has gone and, and documented the eyewitness accounts of the life and death 
of Jesus Christ for a purpose, so that we might, in verse 414, know the truth, the exact truth of what we believe in. And part of the exact truth of what we believe in is really the Christmas story, the beginning. And he starts in Luke 2 with the account of the beginning, the historical account, if you will, of Jesus' birth. And what we see as he begins that account is that it is very much a situation that lacks a lot of what we define and what we call joy. The circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth are very, very difficult and very, very hard. And it begins in Luke 2 with a joyless requirement. It begins with a joyless requirement. It begins, as Luke says in 2.1, with a decree that goes out from Caesar Augustus that everyone in the known world or the Roman Empire is called upon to register for a census. And they're called to go to their hometown. Now, Caesar Augustus was the first official emperor of the Roman Empire. And to him is credited very much building that Roman Empire and building the infrastructure and the roads and the tax system of the Roman Empire. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, and he was the one who consolidated power and built that empire, and he was a very shrewd politician and a very gifted administrator, and he built much of the infrastructure that established the Pax Romana that allowed all these roads and all this infrastructure and aqueducts and all of these things for this huge Roman empire to function, and one of the ways that he did that was through tax reform and through census, that he would document exactly who the subjects of the Roman Empire were for the purpose of receiving tax from them and bringing income and revenue to hold this empire together. And that is all well and good if you want great infrastructure and to live in a great place. But for the Jews, this was a very difficult thing because Caesar Augustus took the name the Emperor of Peace or, if you will, the Prince of Peace. He also took the name the Son of God for himself. And if you were a Jew living at that time far, far from Rome, it was very, very difficult to be in submission to a man who was, in your idea, taking the name of the Messiah and a bla- being a blasphemous ruler. And furthermore, to actually have to pay taxes and to travel to do so to honor this person was a very, very difficult thing to bear. It would be not unlike us being obligated to pay taxes to, let's say, the president or the leaders of a Muslim country like Iran it would not go down very well. So on a grand scale, this was a difficult and joyless joyless event. Anytime we have to pay taxes is probably a joyless event, but even more so for the Jews at this time. Because ultimately it was a reminder to them as they had a foreign and pagan ruler that they were out of favor with God because the promises of the Old Testament and the covenant was that the children of God and those who had favor with God would ultimately have a ruler, a good shepherd who would come, as prophesied by Jeremiah, who would bring that righteous rule and bring the rule of God and get rid of evil dictators and bring the glory and the righteousness of God to them as a people. And the fact that Caesar Augustus was there controlling their lives was a continual reminder to them that they had broken the covenant, that they were sinners, and that they were out of favor with God. But to make matters worse for Joseph and Mary, that decree that went out obligated people in Palestine to go to their hometown, the town of their ancestry, and register with their original families in order for that census to take place and to happen. And what did that mean for Joseph and Mary? It meant a very difficult journey. It meant that they had to travel from Nazareth down to 
Bethlehem, the city of David. And that's a 90-mile journey. That's about the distance between here and, say, Garden Grove and San Diego, except that it was a much more difficult job because there were no carpool lanes. And at that time, Joseph had a pregnant wife, Mary. And I want you to think for just a moment the circumstance for Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary were probably very much like you and I. They probably had dreams and aspirations and expectations similar that, to what we have at Christmas time, especially for their marriage, especially for their union and coming together, the opportunity to have friends, family, holiday, time at home, time with loved ones. And they received this wonderful news from the angel Gabriel that the Spirit will come upon Mary and she will conceive the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. And yet shortly after that news, they have to deal with this issue. Number one, you have to deal with the issue that the rest of the world perceives you as an unwed mother. For Joseph, he has to deal with the circumstance that the woman I'm supposed to be married to is now pregnant. In a small town, that's a difficult thing. News travels fast. And then, on top of that, you have the added difficulty that now, in addition to having this circumstance or this situation, you're obligated to travel with a, a fiancé who is probably between eight to nine months pregnant, 90 miles through difficult terrain, to a place that is away from your friends and away from your family. And it's unclear at that time whether your wife is going to deliver. And I think that anybody here who has gone through that stress of being a first-time parent and all the fears that are associated with it, you could be at the best hospital, you could be at Cedars-Sinai, the anxiety and the stress and the concern of where everything's going to be and where your family is going to be, those are things that um, make us all, let's say, a little bit crazy, and I've certainly been there. But these were the things that attended Mary and Joseph and what they had to face at that time. And when you look at the circumstance and the situation that surrounded them, it was really the antithesis of everything that we look forward to at Christmas time. All those circumstances that give us joy were really stripped from Mary and Joseph. And yet, in the face of really a joyless requirement, we see two people who were faithful. We see two people who simply said, we are the servants of the Lord, and followed through, and submitted to a difficult authority, and submitted to the will and word of the Lord, and endured that that journey and went forward on that journey. And it's not as if for Mary and Joseph, as they went in that journey, that there was something great waiting for them at the end. It wasn't like, okay, we're going to go through, we're going to struggle through with this, it's going to be difficult and it's going to be hard. But at the end of this, there's something great. There's a honeymoon in Hawaii or there's a celebration with family. For them, by the time they reach Bethlehem, we're told really by the time that we get to verse 6 and verse 7, that they received very much a joyless reception, that they were there in a situation where it would appear from the text would suggest that there were not friends and there were not family. In fact, as they arrive, they get close to that time where they show up. We're told that the fullness of Mary's pregnancy came, and Mary was forced to be in a situation where she had to deliver her first child in a place without friends, in a place without family, but even more so, it would sound like or appear like with many travelers who were in this town in a very, very crowded place. And what we learn even more so is that for whatever reason, Mary and Joseph were considered to be people of low esteem. They were not of high regard because where places were crowded and where places were filled, 
nobody was really willing to make room for them. We know that when we travel on a subway or a bus or when we're standing in a waiting room, that if a pregnant woman comes in, usually what do we do? Someone will usually stand up and give that woman a seat. But for whatever reason, Mary and Joseph did not warrant that. Perhaps they looked dirty. Perhaps they were tired. Perhaps they were weary. Perhaps there were many people who were like that who had been on a long journey. But at that point in time, they were unwelcome and they were neglected. And Mary is in a situation where she needs to deliver her child. And when we look at verse 7, the implication when it says she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger, even before we get to the point that there was no room in the inn, the implication of the text is that she had to deliver this child alone. Normally in most birthing situations, there is a nurse mother or there is someone to help. And normally the children are wrapped in swaddling clothes by a family member or someone who is assisting a mother who has just delivered this child. And yet when we look at the text, you realize that Mary is forced to do this herself. And not only is she forced to do this herself, but she's forced to place the child where? One step above the floor in a manger. We see all these beautiful nativity sets and they're so cute and adorable and they have their lights and they have this warm feel and they're lit up at night and they look charming. But the truth is the word manger is related to the French word what? Manger, which means to feed. And really when you go to the text, what they're referring to is not something romantic in French like a manger. It's really a feeding trough. It's a feeding trough for an animal. And that Jesus and his mother and his family were staying probably in a cave or probably in a shack, which is the place where they kept the animals. I highly doubt it met the sanitation standards of most of our hospitals today. But we see that Jesus, the incarnation, God himself coming to us, did not, obviously as we've heard, come in a throne or a great palace or great celebration or with kid gloves or great luxury. But we see that in his birth, as well as his death, he is given the place of an animal. That in his birth, he is given a welcome or a reception, which is on par or even less than an animal. And in his death, he submits to the same thing, where he is the Lamb of God, who is a lamb who is led to the slaughter and is, and is slain like an animal. In his birth and his death, we see the humility and the grace of the incarnation, that God loved us so much, that God loved sinners so much, that he saw such great need and he saw our inability to help ourselves, that he was willing to become the lowest of the low and become on par with or less than an animal for your sake and for mine. From a human perspective, if we were forced to go through these things, we would have to say this is not only a joyless requirement for them, but this is a joyless reception and this is a joyless situation. What is the cause in that circumstance for Mary and Joseph to be filled with delight, to be filled with thrill, to be filled with enjoyment, to be filled with happiness? If anything, it's far from those things. And yet the story, thank God, does not end there with a Savior who is received and treated with and follows the path of less than an animal for your sake and mine. As we get to verse 8, Luke transfers from a manger, a place for an animal, to the people who tend to animals. And he comes to shepherds who are in their fields at night at that time, at the same time that Jesus is born. 
And it's interesting to consider who these shepherds are. That shepherds in the history of Israel were once noble men and of a noble vocation. If you recall, God himself referred to himself as the shepherd of Israel. And Psalm 23, David makes reference that God is his shepherd and that a shepherd, one who cared for helpless animals and protected them from the wild and fed them and guided them and led them and nurtured them and cared for them, was at one time considered to be very much a noble vocation. We know that Moses was a shepherd. We know that Joseph was a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. And David was a shepherd all the way through. And yet, as Israel progressed in its history, and as they became enamored with the ways of the pagan world, the wisdom of the world, the wealth of the world, the wisdom of Babylon and the wealth of Babylon, as they became sophisticated, educated, and began to live in big houses and big cities, and big places where merchant and money became the priority in many ways, and the idolatry became an important thing in many ways, that shepherds suddenly started to drop down the social pecking order. There was nobody running or eager to have their daughter to marry a shepherd or to join a shepherd. Wouldn't you rather have a doctor and a lawyer or maybe even a rabbi for your for your, uh, for your son-in-law. But shepherds had really dropped down to the lowest level of the social pecking order. They were considered to be dirty by virtue of the profession of what they had to deal with. They were considered transient and nomads, not settled. And they were considered to be folks who were outside the realm of the religious order because if you were a religious Jew or a practicing Jew, the place to be was in Jerusalem and the place to be was as close to the temple as you possibly could be. Perhaps the only reason these shepherds were tolerated, especially in the Bethlehem area, is because they took care of the sheep that supplied the sacrifices for the Passover in Jerusalem. And Josephus tells us that up to 250,000 sheep would be slaughtered during Passover and also during the time of the atonement. And so they were tolerated as a necessary vocation for people who would provide for the righteousness of the rest of the nation. But they were not sought after. They were people who you kept a distance from, and they were not people who you socialized with. And yet Luke tells us that it's the shepherds to whom the angel of the Lord appears at Jesus' arrival. And what we see in verse 9 is that as the shepherds sit in darkness at night, gathered together, and what the shepherds would often do is that they would tend to their flocks during the daytime, but at night they would gather together in groups and bring their flocks together, and they would do so for safety and protection and also fellowship during the cold night watch. And in the darkness, we're told, as Luke tells us, that to them, to these, the lowest of the low, the least among Israel, this is who the angel of the Lord appears to. Not the religious not the rabbis, not the scholars, not the seminary students, not the wealthy, not the kings, not the princes, but the least of the least. And to them, an angel of the Lord appears directly before them, standing right there in front of them. And we're told that the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the glory of the Lord that Luke is referring to here is the Shekinah glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord that would fill the temple the glory of the Lord that appeared to Moses so much so on Sinai that he would have to come down with a veil over his face because his face glowed. The glory of the Lord that the Lord would have to cover part of Moses' face so that if he saw that glory of the Lord, he would die. 
because so tremendous and amazing was that glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord that Isaiah saw in his vision in Isaiah 6 coming into the temple. So enormous and so brilliant was the light that Isaiah said, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips because he could not tolerate the holiness, the righteousness, the greatness of the presence of the Lord. It is the glory of the Lord that Ezekiel in his vision saw departing from the temple because of the sin and the idolatry and the covenant breaking of the nation of Israel and the people of God. And after Ezekiel sees the departure of the glory of God, it does not return again. And the people of Israel and the children of God who are sinners and covenant violators and idolaters live in darkness during that time because the absence of the glory of God means the absence of his presence and the absence of his favor. And yet here, in the middle of the night, to shepherds the lowest of the low, the glory of the Lord returns for the first time. And from what we know of the glory of the Lord, the intensity of that light would have lit up the darkness so much so that that area and that field where the shepherd were staying with their sheep would have been more brilliant and more luminous than daylight, the brightest daylight. It was a sign that God had returned and that his favor had returned and that he was about to dwell with his people. Is it any surprise that the shepherds in the field that night were afraid? and that they were terrified as Moses, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, and all the prophets before them. What is this that is happening after we have been in darkness for such a long period of time that the brilliance and the glow of God's glory is back and it's here? What is about to happen? And we see that the angel has a message for them. And one of the things that always happens when you go through Scripture is that the glory of the Lord is never separated from His Word. That one is always associated with the other. And at the moment we separate the glory of God and his grace and his favor from his word, we are in big trouble and we are distorting who God is. Because that glory comes for a reason to give a message, a message of grace. And the first words out of the angel's mouth in verse 10 is what? Do not be afraid. He says, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all people. What was his message at that time? What was his message for these shepherds? Why should they not be afraid? He says to them, I bring you good news. And the word that he uses for that is the word from which we get the term in our language, evangelical or evangel or evangelizing. Euangelion. And when we look at that, when we think of that term to evangelize in our term, we think of someone being proselytized, right? We think of UC Irvine where we're out there and we're basically preaching the word and we're evangelizing. What are we doing when we're evangelizing? We're handing out a tract, we're proclaiming the gospel, we're proselytizing, we're making converts. But when we see here the angel proclaiming the gospel, the good news, we see something markedly different. The idea of a proclamation of good news or of an, a euangelion is the idea in the Greek city-state of good news that is being proclaimed by the king. It's the idea that there are city-states that are in war and battle is happening and the king is at the front of that battle and that warfare. And the people in the city who live behind that wall, the walls, are waiting to hear news. Is there victory on the battlefield 
or is there failure in the battlefield? And they are waiting because the rest of their lives depend on what that news is that is going to be brought to them. And as they wait and as they hear rumor of the battle going one way or the other, finally a messenger arrives. And that messenger comes with the authority and power of the king. And he brings a word that comes with the authority and power of that king. And as he proclaims the good news that victory is won, there is a celebration in that town. And joy erupts. And people dance for joy even as they did when David was a victor over Goliath. Why is that? because they are now safe and secure and the rest of their lives are affected by that. That the word that has gone out is a word of power that transforms not just a life on a day, but it pronounces salvation that they need not fear death, that hope is there, and that the rest of their future is secure. Why? Because they have a champion on the field who has won the battle and has triumphed. This is the notion of the good news that comes and the gospel that transforms. And the angel goes on to say, this is good news of what sort? He says, this is good news of great joy. This is good news of great joy. When we talk about joy, what do we mean when we talk about joy? Joy is a state or condition of the soul or the heart, of intense happiness and intense delight. Why? It is in response to something that is extremely good or extremely satisfying something that lifts our hearts, something that gives the heart cause to sing, something that transforms our life. And unfortunately, in our modern age, probably the closest vision we have to that is someone winning a lottery, right? That they've won $100 million and they've done nothing to deserve it or earn it, and they jump for joy and they're thrilled because in their mind, with all that money, the rest of their life is set and they're able to provide not just for themselves but for their families and everyone around them. And yet, we know that that, to some extent, is a myth and a bit of a lie. But here, this notion of joy, a good news of great joy, is something that is going to transform their lives. And it is a word that comes that is not just an idle word. It is a word that has power to change the entire future of the lives of these shepherds. And the angel proceeds to tell us what the content of that good news is. In verse 11, he says, For today, in the city of David... There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What is the joy and what is the news that lights up that field with the glory of God? First, it is that for them, for these men personally, there is born a Savior. Now, in our day and age and in our modern era, the notion of a Savior doesn't really mean a whole lot. It's been watered down and demeaned and made of no no significance or importance because we live in a time and an era where we are able to purchase with our money or our ability or our skill anything that we really want. If there's a problem, if there's a sickness or illness, we need to go to the best physician. If we have a problem, we need to get the best that money can buy. If we have a problem with our corporation and we need a rescue situation, we'll get the best consultants that we can avail ourselves of. And so we look on a Savior as someone who can fix our problems. And yet we see what the angel is talking about here, a good news of great joy which is going to transform our lives, is not really about someone who can come and fix our problems. The idea of a Savior in the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament is really modeled after God himself. 
And the focus or the paradigm comes in God in Exodus as he delivers the children of Israel out of the bondage of slavery and brings them out to become a people for himself. And he marries those people. And God is the Savior. And what type of a Savior is he? And what is involved in that salvation that he brings? It's not a mere solution to the problems. It's a God who loves his children. It's a God who knows every aspect of their lives. It is a God who hears the cries and the sorrows of his people and the difficulty of their sin and the bondage of their sin. It is a God who comes and redeems those people and saves them from the judgment of sin and provides for them the Passover lamb and the blood that will protect them from the judgment of death that they deserve. It is a God who rescues them from the bondage of slavery. And it is a God who brings them out and doesn't just leave them there. But he marries them and makes those people his own. And as a savior, he provides them with preservation, a keeping, a blessing, and a protection. He provides them with a future that is completely different from their past. And he provides them with the opportunity to live wholly, entirely for him. Why? because of the salvation he brings. And if you have time this week, go back to the first chapter of Luke and read Mary's song and read Zachariah's song, and you will see the type of Savior that the angel here is talking about. Why is this good news? Because the angel is telling these shepherds the least of all people. He's saying to them, for you, not for anyone, not for the rich, not just for the select few, not those who have a special knowledge, not those who have just studied the scriptures and the text and they know all the details in the Greek and Hebrew and they know exactly what the gospel means. He's saying, for you, the least among us, is born today a savior, one who loves you, one who hears your cries, one who understands your sadness and your sorrow, one who understands the bondage of your sin, one who understands the real root of all the difficulties and problems in your life, one who has come to die on your behalf and provide forgiveness for your sins, one who is not going to just leave you there, but one who is actually going to provide not just the salvation of this moment and a ticket to heaven, but one who is going to provide for you an entire relationship and future with God which is going to transform your life. This is a cause for great joy. And then the angel goes even further and he qualifies who that Savior is going to be. That Savior is the Christ, the anointed one, the shepherd of God, the one who we just read about in Jeremiah, who Huey read about. He is the son of David. He is the root of Jesse. He is the Lord, our righteousness, who will give to us a righteousness that we do not have. He will give us the righteousness of God and in giving us the righteousness of God and procuring that for us because he is willing to die on our behalf, he gives us peace and a relationship with God where the creator and savior of the universe is our father, our Lord, and our spirit. But if that isn't enough, he goes one step further and says, this savior who is born to you this day, who is the Christ, is none other than the Lord Yahweh Elohim, the sovereign creator of the universe. What's so special about that? The one who is our savior is not merely a man. The one who is our savior is not just any descendant of David. God himself has come in human form, 
in the frame of a tiny vulnerable baby, in a dirty, filthy stall. He has come in person, not by email, not by textbook, not by message, not by a Christmas card. He himself has come in person to be with you, to procure this salvation for you and to transform your life. And it is on his shoulders and his ability and his faithfulness and his steadfast love that your salvation is secure. When you go to a lawyer and you seek legal counsel, the legal counsel you get is only good as the lawyer you have. When you go to a surgeon and you receive an operation, the cure that you get is only as good as the man who holds that scalpel. When you go someplace and look for salvation and look for help for your problems, your sorrows, your pains, the bondage of sin, the difficulties that weigh down our lives, your salvation is only as good as your Savior. The good news and the joy that the angel brought to them that day is that your Savior is nothing less than Christ, the Lord, the God who sovereignly ordains all things and has created all things and for whom the glory of the Lord is the purpose of all things. The angel of the Lord does not stop there. In verse 12, he says to them, This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. For the shepherds, what was the joy that day? We see here that the gospel is not just a proclamation. We'd like to reserve it as such. But wherever the gospel and the good, good, good news goes out, God does not give his good news without an explanation. And God does not give his good news without instruction. And what the Lord does for these shepherds is he provides them not only with the news that the Savior has arrived, but he provides them with direction of how to find that Savior. Because what good news is there that there is a Savior or that there is a victory if we're not going to reap the benefit? And what good news is there if I'm going to tell you that there is a provision for your problems, but I give you no instruction of how to find that provision? What good news is it if you're thirsty and I tell you that there's water, but I give you no instruction to where that water is? And this is the grace and kindness of our Lord, that not only does he tell us the good news, not only does he come in person, but he provides us with the details and the word and the instruction of how to receive that good news. And he tells them that they are going to find the sign that they have is going to be a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And here, perhaps for the first time, we see the sovereignty of God, that all the difficulty that Mary and Joseph have endured, that the work of an emperor who believes that all he is doing is procuring taxes so that he can become a famous and great emperor, are all converging for this one moment where the baby Jesus will be in the feeding trough of an animal. Why? To be a sign for simple shepherds that is accessible to the lowest of the low, that they might be able to find the Savior themselves. How gracious a God is he to orchestrate all the historical events of the world so that sinners of the lowest and most impoverished order are in a position to recognize who he is, and are in a position to have access. These shepherds, had a king come in any other fashion, would never have had access to the creator and savior of the universe. And yet that is what the Lord has done, not just for these shepherds, but that is what the Lord has done for each one of us. 
What is the response of heaven? And what is the joy of these shepherds? That these shepherds are not only given good news. These shepherds are not only given instruction of how to find that good news. But these shepherds are given the privilege of seeing heaven's response to the gospel. And heaven's response to the gospel are angels who celebrate, a multitude who come out and sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The blessing for the shepherds does not end there. We're told that they are given a joyful reward in verses 15 through 20. We're told in verse 15 that when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. The shepherds got together after the angels departed and they had a choice. Do we rest on this and say we've got the gospel and this is a great situation and we're blessed of all people? So let's get together and do our thing and be the special people and build a temple and shrine and make this all about us, which unfortunately all too often happens? Or are we going to follow the instruction of the word of the Lord? And are we going to go and see for ourselves? And we see that the shepherds follow that instruction. And they get together and they do it immediately and they go hurriedly. And what we see with these shepherds is they exhibit the exact same faith that Abraham had. It is the faith and a belief in God and the word of God to which is credited them righteousness. We see that Abraham, when he is told to sacrifice his son Isaac, gets up early in the morning and goes and does exactly what God has commanded him to do. And James tells us that faith without works is dead. And what we see with these shepherds is a belief in what they've heard and a willingness to follow through and be obedient to what they've heard. And so they pursue this and act on the news that's given them. It's not enough that they've seen the heavenly vision. It's not enough that they've seen the heavenly joy. It's not enough that they possess all the good news to themselves, but they follow through and they pursue. And as they do so, they are rewarded. And what are they rewarded with? We're told in verse 16, that they are able to find Mary and Joseph and they find the baby as he lay in the manger and they discover that everything is exactly as the angel of the Lord has told them. And then we see the beginning of the reward in their lives. That first of all they go and they begin telling everybody they know when they had seen this they made known the statement which had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it in verse 18 wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. What we see with the shepherds is that the shepherds begin to become the angels and the messenger of the Lord. That the grace is not just good news, but now this is theirs. That they have followed the word of the Lord. And as they followed the word of the Lord, what has happened? They have found the Savior, the Lord, the Christ for themselves. And they have seen him with their own eyes. And the gift and the good news and the celebration of the Lord is now theirs and their very own. And as it is their own, they become the messengers of God. And they have good news to give to other people. And their lives are rich. And they have something which nobody else has. And then we see in verse 20, it says that the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. 
When you look at the action and the behavior of the shepherds, what you see is they glory and praise the Lord, is their actions and words are exactly the same as the angels before them and the heavenly hosts who stood in the sky and praised God and said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill to men. What is the reward? What is the gift that's given? That the joy of heaven is now in possession by these shepherds. And that joy of heaven is theirs to give to others. And that joy of heaven that is given to them gives them the voice and gives them the song of angels. And as we look at the joy that they have and compare it to the joy that we possess today and the joy that's celebrated at Christmas, we see a markedly different joy. For of all people, these shepherds did not have a great amount of means or money. These shepherds were not in a situation to celebrate necessarily family or friends because they were forced to work in the fields at night. These shepherds had no access to many of the joys and many of the circumstances of joys that we as Americans experience this day. And yet what we see is none of those things are a barrier for them. That despite all of those disadvantages and despite being the lowest of the low, they have the joy of heaven. And that joy of heaven is an eternal joy of heaven, not one which is subject to minutes or moments, but one that lasts for an eternity and one that we celebrate this very day. What is the true joy of Christmas? As we look at the shepherd's experience and we look at the good news that's come, I think there are a few lessons that we can draw from this as we consider what is it that makes our hearts sing for joy. What is it that causes our eyes to light up? What is it that gives us hope? What is it that gives us encouragement? What we see from the first Christmas story is that the true joy of the world is a joy that comes from above and not from below. It is a joy that's given by God, and it is a joy that is not dependent on circumstance. It's not dependent on privilege. It's not dependent on how much money in the bank we have. It is not dependent on how many gifts that we can give one another. It is not dependent on how many parties we can host. And it is not dependent on whether we get a bonus check at the end of the year on our jobs. It is a joy that transcends all of those things and is of eternal value and cannot be limited by person, place, or thing. Why is that? Because it is a joy that is based on who Christ is, that he is the Savior and that he is the Lord. And it is a joy that comes and gives us the opportunity to sing with the choirs of angels and to be like angels, to bring his good news to other people and to have the opportunity, regardless of our circumstance, to praise and give glory to God. As we look at the history of Christendom, and we look at what distinguishes the great saints. We look at these men who had a joy which existed regardless of the circumstance. We look at the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians, his ode to joy. And it is a letter of joy that's written where? From a prison. And we look at John Bunyan and his book, Pilgrim's Progress, which has been a strength and encouragement to many. And where was that written? Twelve years in prison because he was willing to preach the gospel. 
And we see in the history of Christianity that the true joy of Christmas is one that defies circumstance. And so then the question comes, why, as Martin Lloyd-Jones points out in his book, Spiritual Depression, why is it then that so often Christians seem to be the most joyless and somber and serious people that we ever experience, and they are not the ones who are jumping for joy and filled with that light in their eyes and thrilled with the, the, the joy of eternity and the joy of heaven. And it's worth doing an inventory this Christmas and ask ourselves why. And I think the text gives us a few suggestions. First of all, the question is, what is the focus and what are our expectations of Christmas? What are our expectations of joy? What are the things that truly give us joy? And when we look at that and we look at this Christmas story, we have to say many times that what steals our joy is really an idolatry, an expectation that things will give us joy that cannot fully give us joy. When we look at the definition of joy in the biblical text, we see that in Greek, the word joy is related to the term grace. They come from the same root. And thankfulness, it's charis for grace, eucharist for thanksgiving, and Quran for joy. We see that all these words are related and they're connected. And that joy is an emotion or a condition that has been given to us by God to express his grace in our lives and to respond to him. That the only good or satisfying thing of any eternal value is the grace of God and God himself. And any time we set our expectations for satisfaction and joy on anything less than God and his grace, what is ultimately going to be hap- what is ultimately going to happen? That joy that we have is going to be taken. And so when we find ourselves with joy that is so often short-lived and burning out and going from minute to minute and moment to moment, we have to ask ourselves, what are our hopes set on and what is our focus set on and where are we looking to for joy? Are we looking to the grace of God? Are we looking to Christ, the fount of living waters? Or are we drinking from broken cisterns? And I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, as I think of my Christmas and how I spend my time and how things get so busy with so many different things, families, friends, business parties, so many people to see, so many events to go to, I realize that by the end of it, so often my heart is filled up with so many things besides Christ, the true joy of Christmas. And so I want to exhort you this Christmas, even as Huey did this morning, there are many challenges and there are many difficulties that we all face. But are our hearts and expectations set on those problems being solved and the shortcomings in our lives being fixed? Or are our hearts set on the Savior, Christ the Lord, the one who came to die for us? The second obstacle that comes, even when we've set our eyes on Christ, is perhaps we should say a neglect of his word. If the shepherds only acted on what they saw and never followed through on his word, they would never have found Christ and their joy would have been cut in half. And yet we see we have this opportunity that really for the fullness of the joy, it comes not just with beholding the good news, but it comes from living the good news. Are we willing to follow the instructions of the angels? Because if we're willing to hear the word of the Lord and we're willing to submit and obey, what we will discover is that Christ himself will lead us to himself. 
and we will behold the glory of God for ourselves. We cannot divorce the gospel from the instruction of the Lord and the word of the Lord. The peace that comes, the unity that comes, the peace among men that comes from the gospel is not a peace that divides. It's a peace that unifies. Why? Because it unites us with the Savior. And when it unites us with the Savior and the Lord, it unites us with one another. And when it unites us with one another, there is evidence of a community and a people who have not just heard the gospel or not just proclaimed the gospel. There are people who have followed the gospel and followed the word of the Lord and come and landed, and that's where Christ is. So, brothers and sisters, my exhortation to you this day is if you have not found Christ, and if you're struggling with sadness and sorrow, let's consider where our joy is. And the good news to you this day, this Christmas, is that God himself has come, and he has made himself the lowest of the low. He has set himself beneath the animals and has become the lamb that will be led to the slaughter. Why? So that you might know him, and so that his joy might be yours, and that your joy might be full and that you might be people of joy, and a joy that does not last for the duration of Christmas, but a joy that is eternal, that even this day and this moment, we might sing with choirs of angels and give glory and praise to God, and our hearts might be full. Why? Because our Savior is Christ the Lord. That is his desire for you. And as we close out our time together, that is my prayer for you, not just now at Christmas, but for Cornerstone Bible Church that we might say together, glory to God in heaven and peace on earth, goodwill to those who have found favor with him and that this Christmas, the true joy of Christmas would be yours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are and we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for the sacrifice that you have given and we just pray this Christmas time that we would have time in our busy schedules to come apart and be alone with you and to know that you indeed are our Lord. May we hear your word, may we follow your word, and may at the end of that we find that the grace that you have given us in the beginning brings us grace in the end, and that we might be people of joy, of all people, Lord, set free, for your honor and for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.